Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. James Reston Jr.'s most recent book is a novel that follows the story of one of the 19 men who perpetrated the September 11th terrorist attacks. Sammy Haddad, a handsome, well-off Lebanese student who's been training to be a pilot, hijacks United Airlines Flight 93 on September 11th, 2001, and crashes the plane in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, before he can fulfill his mission to destroy the U.S. Capitol building. The 19th Hijacker is from Republic Book Publishers and brings Mr. Reston to our show. Welcome. Hello. It's a pleasure. Did you originally think of writing this as a, a work of nonfiction? Absolutely, Leonard. Um, it was an, initially uh, suggested to me by Lee Hamilton, the co-chair of, uh, of the 9-11 Commission, and he he got me focused on it because it was so interesting. He, the 9-11 Commission was only interested really in the Shanksville pilot for several reasons. One, that he was Lebanese, uh, and secondarily, that he was in a love affair with someone in uh, a Turkish-German girl in, uh, in uh, Germany. And he was uh, torn between these two things and almost pulled out of the operation a month beforehand. So Hamilton thought he was by far the most interesting, and I was immediately intrigued. Uh, he said he would help me in any way that he, uh, that he could. And I quickly found out in looking at the documents uh, in the National Archives that all the documents relating to the, to the hijackers was... Uh, classified. In fact, aren't uh, the illegal proceedings still taking place at Guantanamo Bay? That's the point, hmm. that so long as there are ongoing legal proceedings in relation to the perpetrators, and this does, uh, this just, uh, does apply to those who are in Guantanamo Bay, but it also applies to all the evidence from 9-11. And that's still classified because of these um, lingering legal proceedings, which probably will linger forever, in my view. But I had to come to the, to the juncture, uh, not being able to get to any of the factual material and all of this, despite Lee Hamilton's mm. uh, suggestion of help, uh, either to um, drop the whole thing. Uh, and I was very loath to do that because I had done four books on the clash of Christianity and Islam. Uh, previously, I was looking for a way to use that that material uh, or to uh, proceed with it as a novel and to imagine what was the uh, way in which the uh, Flight 93 terrorist pilot had been recruited and sucked into the whole thing. And, and so I decided to do it as a novel. And that, he, he uh, talked to you about it around 10 years ago. Have you been thinking about how to tell the story ever since? Well, uh, there, there was some resistance to this story uh, amongst my publishers in New York. Because everybody knows uh, what happens in the end. Yeah, but it was more a question of uh, 10 years ago in particular that anybody involved with 9-11 from the terrorist side of things were regarded as a monster. And of course, as you well know, anybody in, that lives in New York has got a horror story about 9-11 itself. So the idea of this author coming along saying he wanted to uh, focus and not 
on a sympathetic portrait by any stretch of the imagination, but even to humanize this journey from a fine, fine family and middle-class family in uh, Beirut, Lebanon, through Hamburg, Germany, where he got uh, recruited into the Hamburg cell, to Florida, to Newark Airport, and into the mud of uh, Shanksville. That's an incredible human uh, story. And I um, I was very eager to um, to do it. But it <clears throat> there was great resistance to it origi originally. Uh, I My last novel before this was written in 1975, so I was a bit rusty and... Um, in uh, writing fiction. So I, um, I went back to, I get, set aside, went back to it and set aside and went back to it. So, but it was over a 10 year period. Well, the, uh, the, the character you based your, your uh, main character on Sammy uh, is, was uh, Ziad Jarrah. And as you point out, he was a Lebanese man from uh, a middle-class family, handsome, smart, someone whose options were open to him in life. Was he the oddest of the Flight 93 hijackers because he was well-educated, not the sort of person we imagine would be attracted to jihadist radicalization, someone quite different from, let's say, Mohammed Atta, the, the Egyptian leader of the 9-11 attacks? He was only unique in the sense of being Lebanese. Uh, the others were well-educated also, particularly Mohammed Atta was an architecture graduate student. Uh, and uh, the other two were also uh, well-educated. Um, Ziadra was uh, also well-educated, but not very successfully. I mean, he was not the brightest guy around. And he had need, needed special accommodations in his high school uh, training in uh, in Lebanon, and when he went for his uh, higher education in Germany, he had to get some special help and and so forth. So uh, he was uh, he was not as bright, perhaps, as Muhammad Atta was, but he had other things going for him, which um, intrigued me greatly. You to begin with, he was a reasonably handsome guy, uh, quite jolly, uh, and. Um, a perfect example of the sleeper agent that is the most dangerous of all of these terrorists that that he could uh, he could pull off this double life i talked to um, to a man when i was in uh, hamburg who had trained in florida to be a commercial pilot with uh, with the shanksville pilot and um, you know, he had trouble getting through that course. Everybody was was trying to help him out. This was he was a kind of an exotic character in this. You call him a Florida. bit of a bumbler, but also a dreamer. Yeah, flight, uh, flight school, flight We've lost you. It was great celebration. James, we've lost you for a moment. Can you get closer to your microphone? Yeah, sorry, yeah, there you are. It, is that okay? How's that? Is that um, yeah? We that when he finally got his certification, uh, I think it was a source of great celebration to the others in the uh, in the flight school because he had been something of a of a project. But there was never any suggestion, according to this fellow student down there, that this uh, this guy had uh, an evil agenda that he was not displaying in any way. Uh, 
Didn't Hamilton's report also note that uh, Zia Jara had nearly abandoned the mission a month before September 11th because of a romantic relationship with the woman that you mentioned earlier, a Turkish-German woman? Absolutely the case. And of course, That's as, intriguing. A story, as a storyteller, Leonard, that was, uh, that was instantly mm. a, a, a lure for for me, because it set set up this uh, this uh, tug between his uh, oath of allegiance to Osama bin Laden and the mission and all that he had been trained there for, and his actual marriage to this woman in an Islamic uh, ceremony. So, and and it was, I think, quite clear, and the the nine eleven commission report makes it quite clear that he almost pulled out of the operation one month beforehand. So your book has three main characters, three fictional plot lines. You tell Haddad's story largely through his through his Turkish German girlfriend Karima uh, Ligun, or is it Ilgun, um, as she prepares for a career in dentistry, but also through Commissar Gunther Recht, a German police officer who's overseeing the post-9-11 terrorist investigation in Hamburg. First of all, I'm wondering about Hamburg. Um, there was a, a cell in Hamburg. Why Germany? Well, I think uh, Hamburg, Germany, did have quite an extensive uh, Arab community there. And uh, I think it's pretty clear that uh, the, the real... Uh, Shanksville pilot was sent to Hamburg for higher education because that was what a lot of people from that region uh, did. And um, I think he was probably a bit of a lonely uh, character, gravitated to that Arab uh, community and uh, kind of got sucked in partly from loneliness, perhaps. But it interested me a great deal that this was not a Nazi-like um, uh, terrorist in lockstep with Islamic uh, theology and so forth. He's kind of a hangers-on and sort of dra dragged in into the thing as I perceive the character. Um, and um, uh, as you know from the novel, there are a number of scenes in Hamburg where um, where Muhammad Atta kind of nurtures him into becoming more and more part of the organization. Although they don't always have the friendliest of relations. Was that no, true with Zia Jara as well? No, I think definitely the, the, all 19 were not exactly a, a loving band of brothers by any means. There was, I was able to uncover uh, information, and this, of course, goes to the, uh, to, to the portrayal of Sami Haddad in the novel that he really kind of detested hmm. Muhammad Atta. So, um, so, so that was also another interesting quirk to the whole story for me. Although Karima's character is fictionalized, didn't the hijacker's actual girlfriend play a central role in, in the months leading up to the attack? Was she complicit in the plot? That is a central question, not only of the actual, of the actual case, but a, a central, an essential plot line in the novel itself. Mm -hmm. then. That's why I asked... Yes, thank you for asking. Um, yes, well, um, it's. I wanted the reader not to be clear as uh, they read along in this story whether she really was in the know about anything that uh, 
that the actual character, the actual terrorist was, you know, and whether, whether he was very successful in keeping from her um, what was going on in his, uh, in his life. But by having her be a central character there um, and the recipient of imagined tape recordings that I, I imagined that he had been sending, that he had been recording for her benefit to figure out for himself whether he should go forward with the operation or flee with her. And, and, you, that they're all throughout, me, and those recordings are all throughout the novel. They are imagined by yeah. me. But there is a catalyst for that in the actual uh, case, because uh, in the 9-11 Commission archives, there was a farewell letter that um, the actual pilot wrote to his lover the night before in the Newark, in a Newark uh, motel. And I also found out, actually subsequent to this publication of the novel, that he also had called her in Germany as he was going to the airport. So long ago, 10 years ago, when I was trying to figure out how to do this, this thing, that catalyst suggested to me that perhaps he didn't just do a farewell letter, but because he was so much in conflict that uh, he was doing these audio letters to her about what was happening to him, how he, he was getting sucked into this whole thing. So it comes up to that moment, uh, moment of choice. So that gave me uh, the whole story, his story uh, for the months previous coming up to his choice. Uh, that the novel begins, as you know, af after 9-11, mm -hmm. And it's With the police uh, the going to, to to Karima. That's correct. That the, all these these tape recordings go to Karima, and uh, she is listening to the to this, and that gave me the whole post nine eleven side of the thing to tell, uh, which was a period in which the law enforcement of the world, but particularly Europe and the United States, was apoplectic about whether there would be a second wave of, of attacks. And of course, the police immediately focused on this woman, that perhaps she was, a, was complicit in the plot. And that's uh, part of how, it, um, how the story evolves between her and this German policeman you yeah. mentioned. He, he's this frumpy German policeman who's desperate to learn after 9-11 if there'll be a second wave of attacks and if Karima knows anything about it. Uh, was there a, did you speak to any of the policemen? Is, there, is he based on, uh, is Commissar Gunther Rest based on a real person? <laughs> Uh, I, the, uh, there is an equivalent of the, uh, of the FBI in Germany, of course, and uh, I, they mobilized, I mean, hundreds, hundreds of policemen in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 of, uh, of on this very issue of how it had happened, but more importantly, whether there was more, more to come. Uh, and I did talk to two of those um, FBI-like uh, characters from, from Germany about the whole uh, process. There is, of course, a real lover. Uh, and 
she uh, testified in uh, several German court proceedings in, in the aftermath of uh, 9-11, proceedings against uh, remaining al-Qaeda figures of that Hamburg cell. But after her public testimony in those uh, trials, she was clearly put into some sort of witness protection mm. and uh, completely uh, completely sheltered from uh, from any public. I, I sent uh, sent her a letter when I was in Germany to try to, to try to see her, and the letter came back, addressee unknown. So the character of the German policeman is a kind of amalgam of. Um, of several characters in my mind. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. My guest today is James Rustin Jr., whose latest book, his 18th, too bad it's not your 19th, uh, is called The 19th Hijacker, and it is published by a new publisher called Republic Book Publishers. I imagine that they were willing to take a chance um, on on a book that some of the other more traditional publishers were not, um, so uh, you went after you looked at the work of the nine eleven commission and other public records. You went to Beirut, didn't you, to interview yeah. Ziad Jarrah's uncle, and, and then also to, as you mentioned, to to Hamburg to consult with a lawyer who'd who'd worked on a legal case in Germany against the remaining Al Qaeda members uh, of the Hamburg cell. That's correct. I mean, any self-respecting historical novelist does every bit of factual historical research that he or she possibly can can do before launching into the realm of imagination. And it was very important to me to go to both of those places, Beirut and and Hamburg, uh, to uh, glean whatever I could about the actual case uh, so that I could decide how to portray these uh, characters. I did, as you say, uh, talk to uh, Ziad Jarrah's uncle. And the bracing thing about that was that he was a very, very distinguished gentleman who was a legislator in the, the Lebanon legislature. Very distinguished figure. Totally in denial that uh, his nephew was that person, just thought he was on that plane, the nephew was on that plane to go to on vacation to California. Because that's uh, where I the also, plane was theoretically going, wasn't it? It was going to L.A.? It was going to San Francisco. Oh, San Francisco, okay. Yes. Close enough. Uh, I also talked to the spiritual leader of Hezbollah when I was in uh, in. Lebanon about all of this to get the, the feel of how uh, it was felt in that world about the attack on, on America. And then, as you say, I was in Hamburg, uh, spent a, a long time with a lawyer who had actually represented one of the, these remaining Al-Qaeda figures in, in German courts. He was very helpful to, uh, to me to open up everything he knew. So all of that was extremely important in terms of the, the tone and the approach of the novel. How much were you able to learn about the terror cell in Germany and Al-Qaeda's training camp in the Middle East? Uh, did you have to invent these things, or is this also based largely on fact? 
it's based largely entirely on fact that there uh, uh, we know very well that there were these al-Qaeda training camps uh, President Bill Clinton lobbed some cruise missiles into one of the al-Qaeda camps in the 1990s uh, so yes I mean that is a central part of the whole 9-11 story of course about about Afghanistan being a haven for terrorist camps so uh, that is true. And the Hamburg cell is, uh, I think, very well known to the students of 9-11 of through all kinds of sources, including legal sources. You mentioned that uh, the night before 9-11, Ziad Jarrah wrote a letter to his girlfriend in which he shared his uncertainty. Uh, you, you weren't able to find that, to read that letter, were you? Yes, it's uh, yes, I was. So, did it's you pretty the, much use it as the basis of the letter in the novel? It's slightly embroidered, I would have to say, <laughs> but it is essentially the real thing. So, one of the facets of this story that drew you into it was the fact that the hijacker was very com- conflicted about the mission and almost pulled out of the operation a month before nine eleven because of his girlfriend. Yes. Uh, absolutely the case. And, and um, I mean, that essential fact is certainly well known. It, um, it's the central plot line of the, uh, of the novel. Yeah. Uh, this uh, this uh, conflict between these two, two pulls. And Al-Qaeda was very well aware that this was a slippery character for them, that his commitment was less than total. And they had a backup uh, ready for for him, but th- the backup was this character, Zacharias Musawi, uh, who was a real doofus. Mm-hmm. And he was training to, in the same thing as the uh, actual hijackers were, in Minnesota, to fly commercial airlines. And he's the idiot that um, told somebody that he just wanted to learn how to fly the airplane, but he didn't care about how to learn how to land it. Um, so they were training in the United States. We have uh, one, uh, your, your main character here training in Florida and this guy training in, in Minnesota. That's correct. And, it, you know, I think the initial uh, thought must have been in, in uh, the Al-Qaeda mind that if Ziad Jarrah had in fact bailed out uh, with uh, his lover, that they would insert Zacharias Moussaoui into the Flight 93 plot. Hmm. Well, uh, he was, I mean, if, if uh, Ziad Jarrah was a bit challenged intellectually, this guy, Zacharias Musawi, was hugely so. Uh, but he remains a kind of an anecdote to this whole story because he, uh, Musawi, was the only one who was uh, of the 9-11 plotters who was tried in U.S. federal court here in Alexandria, Virginia, was uh, convicted and escaped the death penalty by only one vote, one juror's vote. And he now resides in a uh, <clears throat> maximum security prison in Colorado. Well, the uh, the story continues in, in this country. Uh, uh, 9-11 remaining in the news, the trial of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, 
who's accused of being the 9-11 mastermind and four other defendants, resumed this week after a long COVID shutdown? Well, I will. I hope I live long enough to actually see him tried in the United, in United States court. Uh, but this has been going on for 20 years or 19 years since he was a- apprehended. And uh, the court, the military court, has not uh, been able to um, find a way to try him, nor have the civilian authorities thought it um, uh, possible to put him into normal the normal court system. And, of course, the reason for this is that he was tortured mm-hmm. so severely I think the figure is something like waterboarded 85 times or something. In Guantanamo. Uh, and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, so how would they present the evidence of him being the mastermind if all the evidence that they have comes out of sessions that involved uh, terrible torture? That's why this just get, gets uh, put off and put off forever. And I don't know how they'll ever get over that hump. Mm-hmm. We do read that the um, that there are certain proceedings that go on down there relevant to that uh, that case, but I don't think we're anywhere close to having a formal formal trial of him. Well, to some degree, something similar occurs in in the novel. Uh, Commissar Recht suspects that Karina is withholding valuable evidence, but under German privacy laws, isn't he barred from employing coercive tactics that would force her to talk? He he was. The privacy uh, <coughs> regulations in Germany are far stricter than they are in in this country here, and that's a rather sophisticated point in the in the novel. I'm glad that you picked up on it, but not everyone may. That uh, what? Why didn't this, as soon as they? Uh, heard about this thing, why didn't they just go in and ransack uh, the apartment and uh, go, well, you can't do that in Germany. So um, so uh, there was a great, great deal of delay and a great deal more pressure on the character Commissar Recht to, um, to get his evidence of whether she was complicit or not through uh, more traditional police work. The, the recordings which Karima listens to throughout the book detail all aspects of Haddad's calculated and involved indoctrination. And he tells her about his first meeting with Mohammed Atta in Hamburg, but also his training in Afghanistan under al-Qaeda's military chief, of his meeting with Osama bin Laden, where he swears his oath of allegiance, and of the, of the final months of preparation in Florida, where he comes to actually loathe Muhammad Atta, but can't find the courage to quit. Oh, exactly right. You're a good reader, Leonard. (laughs) Well, that's what the book is about, if we're going to talk about the book. Um, So how do we know how closely that parallels what really happened? The reason I'm asking is if, if people are interested in what really happened, can they read this novel and say, ah, that's probably how it really worked? Well, there's no way they could read a factual book on that point because all of the perpetrators are dead, including the Shanksville pilot. So there is no possible way that another book could be written Mm -hmm. that could portray the evolution of that character from 
Beirut to Hamburg to uh, to Newark to Shanksville. Um, all of that had to be imagined. But there is a lot of of secondary sources and peripheral sources that uh, I delved very deeply into to um, uh, to draw that character and to imagine that uh, that recruitment. You know, I was in uh, United States Army intelligence uh, in the, during the Vietnam era and trained in the recruitment of foreign agents. And I came upon doing this novel in the immediate aftermath, having done four books of medieval history on the clash between um, between uh, uh, the West and the East and Islam and and Christianity. I was looking for a, a modern case to apply this uh, this kind of um, this kind of knowledge. So um, um, my hope in uh, for the reader, and I have good reason to hope this because many of my readers have said this, that uh, when they read this novel, it has an air of authenticity to it, where they could, where one could say, yes, it, it must have happened something like this. So obviously I can't represent that it happened exactly like this. Mm. But it, um, the portrayals of the characters and the uh, recruitment process, the training in uh, Afghanistan, the time in Florida, uh, there are peripheral sources that allowed me to come very, very close in the rendering of this story to what actually happened. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. with James Reston, whose latest book is The 19th Hijacker. It's published by Republic Book Publishers. Um, you've written 18 books and four plays, and they cover a wide range of topics, including Galileo, John Connolly, the mass suicide on Jonestown, the Vietnam War, um, baseball, which is, uh, what, the Pete Rose and uh, Bart Giamatti uh, scandal, um, what draws you to, to a subject, and most specifically, uh, something like this? I mean, you, you mentioned Lee Hamilton, but um, it, was it, as you said earlier, also the, the, the books on the clash between Christianity and Islam? Well, what you've mentioned there <clears throat> sounds like a very disorganized mind, doesn't it? Well, I mean, it sounds like you're interested in a lot of different stuff. I understand that you've actually written another book while waiting for this thing to be completed, and that's uh, on something totally different again. Frederick II, the, the 13th century um, Roman emperor? 
You're, you're off Kim Mike again. That was how that was how I made it through my year of sequestration in my cabin in uh, the mountains of Virginia uh-huh. during the COVID. So that's my COVID book. Um, yes. Well, um, while it may seem to to the uh, to a listener to to that that this is um, somebody who really can't focus on anything, <laughs> I would have to say that I have never written a book, any of those eighteen books that I didn't uh, feel intellectually interested in and emotionally connected to. That um, uh, it um, it's very, very important to me to be deeply invested emotionally uh, in something and to be in intellectually stimulated in in the process. Because writing a book, you've talked to hundreds and hundreds of authors, I'm sure you've heard this all the, all the time, uh, is an arduous process that often goes on for, for years. I understand. And, I've tried to write books myself. And my brother has published uh, probably, I think, even as, almost as many books as you have. So I've been a witness. This is not a competition. Uh, but, um, you know, that's it, it, how one sustains one's interest in one subject for a period of a couple of, of years is basically through intellectual interest and, uh, and emotional investment. And I... Uh, that has always been very important to me. Uh, nobody's come to me over this 40-year career said, you ought to write about this or that. And I say, oh, that's a great idea. Maybe I'll do that. Uh, so, um, so, so the life of the writer is really a rather um, solitary, lonely life. And you are living almost entirely between your ears uh, and with your heart. Uh, through this whole uh, whole process, so if your if your brain and your heart is not really all that invested in the subject, it can be an absolute torment. So um, so that I would represent is um, is why I've done so many different uh, topics, and maybe it's not about a disorganized mind, but just a very intense. Uh, sense of curiosity. In the 1970s, didn't you play a role in Richard Nixon's famous Watergate interviews with David Frost? Some would say it was the critical role. And um, David Frost had a, re- a reputation of being something of a lightweight, and yet he had gotten this extraordinary contract to um, interrogate Richard Nixon two years after he was in disgrace, driven from office, and had never been interrogated on the Watergate um, matter. And I think David Frost knew that he needed help, and he hired me to be his Watergate advisor. So um, I was teaching uh, creative writing in North Carolina at the time. He brought me to Washington. He rented an apartment in Georgetown, and I did all the background research on Watergate for him and then constructed an interrogation strategy for him. So you found uh, key documents fundamental to the outcome of the interviews? That was critical to that whole drama that um, 
I had discovered tape recordings that nobody had ever seen that had not, well, not, that's not true, that, that had not been made public. Of course, there was something like 800 people following, uh, journalists following the Watergate trials and so forth, but they were all in the courtroom. And I was coming at the thing two years later and was uh, squirreled in the, in the court uh, library reading documents and out popped uh, some tape recordings that had never been made public. And so in the interrogation document that, that I wrote for, um, for David Frost, we very carefully salted in these surprises for Nixon because um, the critical point was how was David Frost going to take control of this interview and not be just sort of overwhelmed by Nixon letting Nixon take control. So we sprang these um, surprises on Nixon and at the very beginning and it allowed David to uh, take control. Wasn't your book on the interviews, the conviction of Richard Nixon, the basis for Peter Morgan's play, Frost Nixon, and then the, yes. the, the movie of the same name? Yes. Yes, it was. But he's a, um, he's a Brit. How did that happen? Well, you know, I'm in my little um, house here, here in Washington. At the, at the time, got a call from a, a guy called Peter Morgan, who... Uh, was a uh, had done one uh, program I think in Britain, and said he had this idea to do a play about the uh, Nixon interviews. Uh, I thought, great! Uh, he said, "Would I help him?" And I said, "Wonderful! I love the theater. I <clears throat> had um, had done plays." And uh, so I met with him in Washington and in London, as it turned out, and rather stupidly, I would have to say, uh, gave him a manuscript for the book that you mentioned, The Con Conviction of Richard Nixon, which was not yet, had not yet been mm. published. And um, then some months later, he called me and said the book, the play was going to go up in a small theater and in uh, London, and would I come over for the first couple of uh, rehearsals? So I got on the plane and read his play and had my manuscript and saw that the two were joined at the hip. So that's the beginning of that story. Well, you've written four plays of your own. <laughs> yes. Did it feel right. weird? Well, there, I mean, it was a great, it was a, a great attraction to me. Of course, getting over there sitting in a uh, rehearsal space with Frank Langella, this great American mm -hmm. actor, and, um, and um, Michael Sheen, wonderful, wonderful English actor playing David Frost. It was hugely exciting to me. So what I should have said when I realized how close the play was based upon my uh, book, I should have said, well, we, we need to have a business relationship here. But mm -hmm. I never did, and I really got into great loggerheads with Peter Morgan, ultimately, and he reluctantly did what he was supposed to be doing uh, in my behalf. But he, he could have listed you as co-author, perhaps. Well, that's, uh, that's right. That, that is actually a Hollywood point. If, if uh, he had uh, said this was a—he had said openly that this was— 
based on a book by me. It changes the category from being an absolutely original work by him. It has a financial um, aspect to it uh, in terms of Hollywood contracts. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is James Reston, Jr., his latest published work is The 19th Hijacker, which has just been published by Republic uh, Book Publishers. Uh, why was Flight 93 diverted from its planned path to, to Washington, D.C., and, and crashed instead into um, the ground in Pennsylvania on 9-11? That is perhaps the greatest heroic story of ordinary citizens in all of American history, the revolt of passengers uh, on Flight 93 once it was hijacked. And I have argued uh, now very uh, very much in the non-fiction uh, non factual realm with an article in American Heritage Magazine that uh, <clears throat> that the United States Capitol was saved by a series of accidents of history. Um, when that uh, plane gathered at Newark Airport, it was supposed to leave 25 minutes uh, earlier than it actually did. And the plot itself... It was supposed to leave the same time that the other planes were leaving. That no? Was the, that was the nature. Oops, you're off my feet. All four planes would take off at about the yeah. same time and reach their targets at about the same time. So why was it delayed at, at Newark Airport? Traffic. Simply morning traffic. Oh, too much so, traffic at the airport. And I'll there, remember that the next time my so flight many, is delayed. Yeah, there are so many little, uh, we keep on losing you. Sorry? We keep on losing you. We keep on going off mic. Okay, oh. sorry. There are so many um, so many happenstances in that the uh, fact that it was 25 minutes late in departing, had it been uh, delayed another two or three minutes, it would have been grounded because all of the flights in the New York area were grounded uh, after the first plane hit uh, the tower. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's happenstance number one, that it could have been grounded had it been delayed a couple more minutes. Happenstance two is that um, it was not hijacked uh, until uh, sometime later than the other three had been hijacked. It was already way out over Ohio before it was taken over. In the case of the others, uh, they were hijacked almost immediately within 10 or 15 minutes. This wasn't uh, hijacked for uh, a considerable longer uh, amount of time for that and was farther west from its uh, target. They were in Ohio at the time? They were in oh. eastern Ohio. Oh. So it was, <clears throat> it was hijacked, and it meant that there was something like a 20 to 25-minute period there. Uh, where the passengers were uh, <clears throat> were crowded into the back of the plane and sequestered by two mes muscle men uh, to keep them um, quiet. That, too, is a critical point about uh, the uh, Flight 93 case, 
because the other three planes had three muscle men in the back of the plane to uh, to keep, take control of the of of the passengers. That becomes a critical thing in the in the decision of the passengers to uh, act to storm the uh, to storm the cockpit. But hadn't it, they hadn't they heard what had happened uh, because they were in yes. frequent contact with friends and families and officials during the hijacking? So they knew from all the other attacks that their own flight w- was doomed. Exactly right. That 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 is the is the first happenstance about the late late departure of the whole thing, meaning that that very shortly after it was high, uh, flight 93 was hijacked over <clears throat> over ohio people got on their cell phones that to me was uh was in in itself an amazing thing that mm-hmm. you could actually get on your cell phone in a uh in a, a commercial airline and and reach your loved ones at any rate they they were able to do that and were immediately told about the the uh, World Trade Center and Pentagon attacks, so they knew that. And then this extraordinary group of people get together and decide what are they going to do. Now, this is also a critical point in the uh, in this uh, story because hijackings in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s were always characterized by these terrorists taking over a plane with demands of some sort or another and forcing a plane to land somewhere where negotiations took uh, would take place and ultimately passengers were uh, uh, passengers were released so they had to within minutes understand all of that history did not apply hmm. they heard what happened to the other th- I'm on the radio uh, they knew what had happened to the other three and understood immediately that they were part of the same uh, plot uh, and had to decide whether to act or whether to sit tight. So in their uh, phone calls, they talked of voting to mount an assault on the hijackers in the cockpit. Absolutely. And, and ex- you know, so many extraordinary things about, uh, about that part of this, this story. Then uh, an, um, another amazing happenstance of this is the camp passengers themselves that included some very athletic types, a quarterback on his high school team, mm-hmm. a bungee jumper, a, a star field hockey player, a 200-pound uh, another football player. <clears throat> and... It meant that once they they had decided in this democratic vote to to storm the uh, the cockpit, <clears throat> they could very easily these athletes overwhelm these two scrawny little guys that were something like five five and five seven uh, inches in height and get to the cockpit itself with the console of the of the um, of the flight attendants to bang against the door. <laughs> so, uh, in response, the hijackers decided to crash the plane early instead. Well, needless to say, the um, the flight recorder that records 
the voices in the cockpit is terrifying in every way. Uh, and um, one can hear the, with the crashing against the cockpit door. And also hear, it's now all, all obviously immediately been translated, hear what the dialogue was between my Sammy Haddad, my fictional character, and the real character, it's based upon Ziad Jarad, dialogue between uh, him, the pilot, and his and he, minder. And he was flying mind. the plane? He was flying the plane. Oops, there you go again. As the, as the crashing was going on against the cockpit door. Mm -hmm. And there is an interchange between Jarad and, and his minder as to whether they should... Um, they should crash the plane, put it down, or just wait until uh, the cockpit door was uh, was broken through. If it was going to be broken through, I mean, it's unclear, but it was the decision finally, and this is uh, in the voices of the terrorists, to, to put the plane down. There is also a suggestion, and I have um, I have written this in the novel, that there was a disagreement between Ziad Jarrah, my Sami Haddad, and the minder about whether to put it down or not. And there seems, from, from the dialogue between the two in the cockpit, to have been a slight struggle between the two in which it is my view that the minder actually took control of the, of the stick of the plane and pushed it down to push it into the mud. Uh, not Girard, but that's my speculation, and that's the way I have drawn it in the novel. Did anyone survive the crash? No. Not only did no one no one survive, but the plane itself was completely swallowed up by the mud of Shanksville. There was nothing above ground of that plane. Well, this and the other, if you if it's not horrifying enough to just talk about that, the last thing to say about that is that before it actually hit the ground, the plane turned upside down and so went into the ground upside down. Now, what this book deals with as much as anything else is the mind, getting into the minds of men like Haddad who commit acts of terrorism because they're compelled by political or religious conviction, uh, by perceived injustice, sometimes even the belief that they're paving the way to a better world. Do you see parallels between 9-11 and the January 6th insurrection in the Capitol? There are parallels, um, but they're not exact parallels by any stretch of the imagination. It was um, very, very annoying to me in the aftermath of January 6th that the press almost uniformly referred to the January 6th attack on the Capitol as being only the second time that the U.S. Capitol had ever been attacked, uh, and the first time being in 1814 with the British mm -hmm. uh, when they burned this much smaller U.S. Uh, Capitol. Uh, almost never until I have written about this has it been pointed out how what a close call it was that the U.S. Capitol was not destroyed on uh, on September eleventh, uh, so um, it's almost impossible to imagine how 
much worse 9-11 would have been if uh, the Capitol had been destroyed. Um, it uh, would have been a, a backdrop of a ruin for years. The uh, United States government would have been totally uh, shut down for a long period of time. Many lawmakers would have been killed along with probably hundreds, if not a few thousand more, uh, more people than that. So were, were they uh, planning to course, crash into the dome? Is that it? Well, who knows? Uh, I, I don't know. But I, I think what what is almost certainly the case is that when uh, plane was hijacked in Ohio, that that waypoints were entered into the um, into the flight data recorder for probably Reagan Airport. Um, so that the plane basically was flying on automatic pilot from uh, from Ohio to Reagan Airport, and of course the U.S. Capitol is right there. And if it comes, if a plane comes screaming in over Reagan Airport at 440 miles an hour, uh, it's uh, it wouldn't be hard to hit the Capitol. So where it would have hit, who knows? We we have to leave it there, unfortunately. But thank you so much for being on our show today, James Reston Jr. His latest book, The 19th Hijacker, from Republic Book Publishers. Uh, and um, I'm looking forward to your very different book on Frederick III. What a pleasure it's been talking with you. Yes, I, this is our second time talking together, Leonard, but I'm sure you've forgotten. No, the, I have the, not forgotten. <laughs> very, that's one of the reasons you were invited back, because we had, because you're such a great guest. Anyway, that, that brings us to the end of today's show. You, you can access our archive of over 500 shows at WBAI.org and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else that podcasts are available. There are also links to our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And if you would like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I, I need to ask you to consider supporting WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. 2950. Please do it right now because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content. WBA is supported 100% by listener donations. I don't think there's any, no other station in the area for sure. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopez at large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to keep this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's entirely listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible dollars. My great thanks to everyone who's already stepped up to support the station in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Ada Ferrer, the Julius Silver Professor of History and Latin American Studies at New York University, will discuss her new book, Cuba and American History. You won't want to miss it.